At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 717th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Good day, seed savers. My name is Greg Peterson, host of the Urban Farm Podcast. Today I am with Hasina Kasim, and we are chatting about her experience with growing and saving seeds. Hasina is a mother and a newish farmer in Hot Springs, North Carolina. She works the land with honeybees, chickens, dairy goats, gardens, and several composting methods. Asina is a grower of seeds for So True Seeds in Asheville and has recently completed the Organic Seed Alliance Seed School. I love that we're chatting today. Are you ready to talk seed saving? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So I shared a little bit about you. Can you tell us a bit about your background and why you decided to take Organic Seed Alliance School? Being uh, fairly new to this area of North Carolina, we've been out here about five years always looking ways to diversify the farm and I'm very motivated to uh, find a way to do it full-time. When looking for the opportunity I saw that uh, So True Seeds was looking for seed growers and I'd, I'd grown them for a hobby but I hadn't ever tried to grow them with uh, a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, that led to the school and really excited to learn about it and it was absolutely amazing the guest speakers It's just so amazing when you look at a little packet of seeds and you just don't realize like how much it takes to fill that packet. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Tell us about Organic Seed Alliance Seed School. Is it a, how long is the program and what are you learning? Well, it is an eight month program. We meet on Zoom or we had met on Zoom twice a month. And then you have a seed project that you do Mm -hmm. and you can choose to do an enterprise budget which um, we still had to do some of that, like tracking our labor hours and like the size of our plots and fertilizer we might have put on and count the number of plants and track all of that. And you think, I don't know, I think I'm pretty good at tracking stuff. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I realized maybe not so much. <laughs> well, that's but what the we other... to learn, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the other half was the seed historian uh, project. And that's what I picked. But it's absolutely amazing. We're learning about like seed growers all over the Americas, really. We've had uh, guest speakers. We've even had some guest speakers from Africa and Canada, but also here in the U.S. And um, it's a really great group of people. Nice. You said Um, you chose the seed historian project. What's that mean? Yeah, um, well, you could research a crop and uh, get to know it from like its, its history, like where it came from, 
ancestors where the people selected the varieties for mrs burns basil is named after yeah it's named after her i really like a good story a good seed story (laughs) so you're growing two different seeds to Mm -hmm. save for so true seeds tell me about so true seeds they're a a local seed company uh, based out of Asheville. And they support local seed growers, but they try to do all like heirloom and open pollinated seeds. They do have a store location in Asheville, but a huge catalog online. And they really support locals from like there's the art on their seed catalogs and their seed packets to sourcing their seeds locally. Nice. And you're yeah. growing two varieties for them. Tell us about the two varieties. We're growing uh, an impatient flower called pink balsam that's supposed to be a native of Madison County. So that one was of interest because it's native to here. Mm-hmm. And it's a really pretty pink flower. Except it's in the impatient family. So harvesting those seeds can be a little bit tricky because those seeds, when they're ripe, they explode. And oh, um, nice. yeah, yeah. So we had to mesh bag them and seal them up real good and you know wait for the right weather because you don't want to bag them when it's going to be rainy you want it to be dry because you don't want any mold on it so that was one but those were really fun because you can harvest them when they're pretty bound and then you can pop them (laughs) there's a name i don't know if you know the answer to this i can't think of it but there's a name for when the seed pods explode because in nature there's a reason for that when they explode it kind of projects the seeds out do you know mm-hmm. that name i think it's like dehiscent or something oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i don't know how to if I pronounce that correctly so i didn't want that's to mention all right. it <laughs> that's all right it's all good yeah, so there, that's... there's you got to be patient harvesting the seeds from the impatient yeah (laughs) (laughs) so then the other ones that you are growing the other seed you're growing for so true seeds is is a old joe clark it is a uh a red peanut bean or a half runner was the other one and with a name like old joe clark i thought it i thought it would have a good story (laughs) right exactly and you why did you pick these two particular seeds well um the first time I grew for So True Seed, they actually sent out a spreadsheet and you pick the seed you wanted. Mm. And then um, the second year, they asked me about these two. We also talked about tomatoes, but didn't think I had enough space to dedicate to the amount of tomato seed. Mm-hmm. So a lot, like a lot on the seed packets is what you can expect to harvest, you know, like the fruit, the crop. Mm-hmm. But there is information on like how much space it takes to harvest a certain amount of seed. And so I wanted to uh, make sure I could fulfill the contract. So those were two they didn't need very many of. Got it. Awesome. Yeah. All right, we talked about So True Seeds and mm-hmm. you're doing the uh, seed school. Those are two separate programs. Correct, yeah. Uh, the Organic Seed Alliance Seed School was put on by the Organic Seed Alliance. And mm-hmm. I went to their online conference this year too. And I don't know why I was just blown away by it, the seed industry. And I knew some things about it, but I forget what the percentage is, but it's a pretty high, maybe in the nineties of companies that control our seed, like 90 some percent. I don't know if you know what that is. Yeah. I'm, I'm a lot, uh, a large 
percentage of our seeds are controlled by three or four different companies. I can't remember what that percentage is, but it's it's high. Yeah, yeah, it might be in the set. Yeah, it's a high percentage. And that's something that we all should have access to. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, that shouldn't be that way. So that's a big motivator. And it's really interesting because the seeds and the stories and people have such a connection to saving their family seeds that you meet a lot of people that are really passionate about it. And um, I just think that's incredible. For the seed school, you had to pick a project. Yep. What is your project? It's the seed historian report for Old Joe Clark. Old Joe Clark. Half, the bean. half runner beans. <laughs> yeah, half runner. So one of the reasons I love interviewing people and talking with people is I get to learn something new every time. And when you set over your, sent over your list of questions, it said a half runner bean. And it's like, in my mind, it's like, I know what a runner bean is. What's a half runner bean? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know either, but I found out. <laughs> it is kind of like a combination of a pole bean and a bush bean where it doesn't need a trellis, but that if you give it support, you know, you can increase your harvest, but you could let it, you know, grow like a bush bean or you could support it and it could do, um, grow up a trellis. Yeah. So a runner bean needs a trellis. Ideally. Yeah. Like that a runner. Makes sense. Yeah. Or like a pole bean or, mm -hmm. um, a cornfield bean as they were called. So they could, uh, grow up the corn stalks. So they need some kind of support, whether it be any kind of trellis. Old Joe Clark beans. Mm -hmm. Tell us what they look like. And it's a half runner bean, so it will climb. Mm -hmm. Are they have are they productive? What do you, you know, tell me about them? Yeah, they were pretty productive. We probably harvested, um, I don't have like the square foot of the garden on the top of my head, but we harvested about a pound of seed. Mm -hmm. And we probably could have got a bit more but the bean beetles, they were pretty um, prolific. Yeah, they usually get our on our pumpkins, but this year they really seem to like the uh, old Joe Clark. They were really pretty plants. We had, I did trellis mine to make it easier to harvest, but the bean pods were probably maybe six, seven inches long. They started off green, and then when they ripened, they turned more magenta, and the actual mm -hmm. Being inside of there is kind of like a pink fuchsia magenta color. Oh, interesting. And it's a pretty yeah. big bean. Yeah, it's a pretty good size bean. The pod's pretty long, can be mm -hmm. long, but the actual bean probably is about the size of maybe a black bean. Yeah. Because I, I uh, in Phoenix, I prolifically grew a cow pea. Ah. We call them uh, Urban Farm Rio Red Cow Peas. I've been growing them out there for about 15 years or so. They do make a bean pod, which is six or seven inches long, but the bean or peas inside of them are tiny. They're a small one about the size oh, of a wow. lentil. But this is, this is actually the size of a bean. Mm -hmm. And what do you, if, if I were to get a pound of them and want to do something with them, what am I going to do with them? Well, they do cook them uh, several different ways. They're supposed to have kind of a nutty taste is why mm -hmm. they're also called red peanut beans. 
but you could cook them, you could can them, you could freeze them. The half runner beans, because of their growth habit, got really, really popular for growing in people's yards. So I didn't really particularly see any recipes, but I mean, they would mix collards in and then throw whatever like grease or uh, bones they had in. It seems like they preferred to cook the beans like all day. Mm-hmm. Any kind of recipe I read, it was like cooked half a day or even a full day. And um, I guess whatever he had else would be added to the pot. <laughs> right, there you go. So, yeah. So tell me about the beans and their importance as a staple in other parts of the world. Because we they're not really a staple for us here in the United States, but they are elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I think before we had all the variety, they probably were much more. They found uh, fava beans in northern Israel. Uh, they, they were able to date back to something like 14,000 years ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like every region of the world had their own bean that was able to be cultivated. In Turkey, they had chickpeas. In uh, Mesoamerica, which would be Central America, is where we get the runner beans, lion beans, uh, the common bean, and then the tempari bean, mm-hmm. which is pretty popular out in Southwest. Or it grows well out there. I don't know if popular yeah. is the right word. <laughs> well, and one of the things that you mentioned before we started was that they're growing the beans with corn. And I know I've heard of three sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of flows into that. Why would you grow beans and corns together? Some beans need a trellis. And then uh, beans being in the lagoon family, they have this amazing ability to be able to take nitrogen out of our atmosphere mm. and store it into their root nodules. And because they're able to do that and then corn such a heavy feeder, it's quite a compliment um, to each other in the soil system, our ecosystem. So people would plant their corn, let it get tall, and then put plant their beans in and plant like a, a pole bean or a cornfield bean. But you'd harvest the beans before you harvested the corn. So you could still mechanically, I guess, harvest the corn. Wow. So they, so, they kind so, of work together in multiple ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I've tried to do the three sisters and I've done it multiple times, I'm going to pay attention now more to the bean variety I choose. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. So let's talk about the old Joe Clark half runner bean. Tell me about the history of it. Runners are probably from Central America. They grew up in the cooler, wetter, uh, subtropical climate, which made it really good for a lot of parts of Europe. So they quickly became uh, popular with that, with being able to grow in those climates. And then the half-runner bean, I think, from what I could find out, was said to develop in Calhoun County, West Virginia. There was a lady there that she'd go to the same hardware store and get all of her other seeds except for bean seeds. And she was always bragging about her bean seeds. <laughs> so they finally convinced her to share some. And uh, she did. And um, they were able to send it off to the university and have it tested. And they confirmed that it was a cross between a pole bean and a bush bean. I don't know how they do that, but wow, somehow they do that. <laughs> her name is Eulina Hall. But anyway, they became uh, very popular because of their growing habit, cool, mm-hmm. wet conditions and not needing a trellis or can having a small trellis being more compact in size. That was the start of the runners, not the start. I'm sure other locales had them, 
regionally, that was where they say the half runner came from. Got it. So let's talk about old Joe Clark now. Yeah. <laughs> where, where did the name come from and where did the bean come from? It took quite a bit to find that out because it was uh, it's not offered in a lot of places. I happened to be over on a bean forum and there's huge grower networks just for beans. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So I finally got referred to a guy named Bill Best. And he said, uh, old Joe Clark's widow had given him the seeds many years ago. They host a big seed swap over there in Berea, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And she had been a customer for a long time from them. And when he, when old Joe Clark passed away, she'd given him the seeds. And it turns out old Joe Clark was a comedian at the Renfro barn in Kentucky and the Renfro is still going. Like I looked it up, it's still going. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty neat. So he was a comedian there and he'd love to grow beans. <laughs> wow. How, you know, I just love the seed stories that we discover along the way, you know? Mm -hmm. I think because they're so close to, you know, very personal to people's families. Yeah. And it takes years. So are there seed stewards in North Carolina area here? Yeah, there are quite a few. A few in the area, uh, not all are dedicated to beans, but, but there is a really strong group of people that are highly focused on collards and okra, mm -hmm. the uh, Utopian Seed Project. And I think Ujama out in Virginia, they're reviving a lot of heritage and heirloom crops. And then doing the seed project research is where I found out about a, a bean collector's window. Mm -hmm. And that's Russ Crow. And he's been saving uh, bean seeds since the 70s. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And his website is absolutely incredible. There's over like 170 some varieties of beans. It has the stories on there and pictures of them. And if you're interested in growing and trading uh, bean seeds, he's open to that. You know, encourage you to reach out and then uh, Bill Best, uh, his website, heirlooms.org um, is another wealth of information and they do mm -hmm. seed swaps. So those were the two I really found out about doing the bean, bean project. And the first person with 170 beans, what was his website? A bean collector's window. A bean collector's window.com. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I love how creative people are. <laughs> yeah get with all this stuff right yeah he's got a network called like the little easy bean garden or something and that is a bunch of bean growers and you could talk about beans share bean <laughs> seeds <laughs> yeah nice yeah. so how has i'm going to shift on you a little bit here i want okay. to tell us how the seed school has impacted your life and what you're going to do with it well it's really uh sparked quite a, like a, an interest with me with the seed growing, wanting to be uh, a farmer, like want to be able to do it full time. We've mm -hmm. got a lot of activities going on and we've tried a lot of different things, but I really like the, the feeling it comes from saving seed mm -hmm. to think about um, everybody that came before me, like to help develop this variety. And not that I'm really like wanting to develop varieties, but um just being it able good <laughs> maybe by accident Why maybe not? just to be able to carry on you know the legacy i think that's one of the greatest gifts mm -hmm. we can give to the future is our seeds and our knowledge and so 
you know, we raise chickens for eggs and, you know, that feels good to help nourish the community, but seed saving is just a little bit bigger than that. Sounds like you get excited about that. There's something that I lights do. you up. Yeah. When there's so in nature, I've said this for decades that the only place that lack lives is between our ears. Because when <laughs> I look, when I look to nature and nature's ability to produce abundance, it's mind blowing. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. You plant like one sunflower seed and you get hundreds. Like, how is that possible? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And so you, you live on a little farm in hot springs near hot springs right yeah tell us about your farm yeah um it's about five acres and half of it is under cultivation i said we do uh we have honeybees they're one of the newest things added to the farm um but we've had chickens for quite a number of years and we do them on rotational pasture and then we have dairy goats because we, we needed more mischief in our lives <laughs> <laughs> right yeah, but um, we've used the milk and like smoothies and things. But this year I've started to make cheese and like all kinds of things like ice cream and pudding and uh, sea salt, uh, goat milk caramels. So we're excited to try to maybe market some of those things. But dealing with dairy is a little bit different. So yeah. um, we have that and then a pretty good sized garden. It's probably about a half acre to quarter acre. Plus we have other areas. We try to really reduce where we have to mow and weed eat. Uh -huh. So if we can put an animal on it or, uh, or some flowers, we'll do that instead. Nice. And I've interviewed you before about mm -hmm. uh, your worm business in the past. Yeah. Uh, are you doing anything with worms? We, I will always have worms. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I found that to be when I moved, uh, when I, we met in Phoenix, you and I, and so uh, when I moved out here, I thought the worms would be a bigger part of it because they were pretty much my business in, in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. But um, I found it that to be a little bit of a different types of unique challenging, like the food waste system, um, we're more spread out in a rural community. People mm -hmm. tend to do their own composting, but I do have a worm bench where we uh, compost all of our food scraps with the chickens and the goats don't eat. And I guess the dogs too. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the, the worms get a lot of tea. <laughs> so, and they do get some eggshells for the grit, but I will always have worms and I still use it, but it's more like just on the personal farm. We'll do classes or demonstrations happily, but yeah. Why farming for you? You know, I just, I really, really enjoy being outside. When I uh, was going to school, one of my uh, nutrition teachers, he suggested that we all need to take vitamins because food isn't that healthy as it mm. used to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, I thought, well, we should probably fix the soil. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So, and then with your influence, you know, I really got into composting and really we just ended the worms and then where I had worked at the Phoenix Zoo we had a really big composting operation there mm -hmm. and I thought well why go to the gym and take vitamins when you could just farm because you're, either way you're going to have to pay I'd rather pay now than pay later <laughs> so rather right. invest in the front end so um you know and my my mom was raised her grandparents farm and my dad also farmed and I just think it's a way like to leave a little 
legacy behind, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's too much ego, but uh, I do have a daughter. (laughs) That's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, I would like to leave her that like eventually I would like the garden to, or the whole property to be more gardenish where we have more pathways and woodland plants throughout Mm -hmm. it. But I wanted to be out here with the seasons. I thought it would be better for the soil and more variety of crops and then more rainwater harvesting and yeah well more rain than phoenix <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i started I, there's this great website out there called rainlog.org i encourage everybody to ah. go to rainlog go to rainlog.org set up a free account it's run by the university of arizona in tucson and oh. it's a basically you buy i bought a six dollar rain gauge and you know, like when I got up this morning, I went and checked the rain gauge and there were two tenths of an inch of rain. And I've, I've been on rainlog.org for about a decade with in Phoenix when I was there. And mm. we'd get between five and eight inches of rain a year uh, in Phoenix. I started my rainlog account here in, in Asheville in me- mid-May and we've already gotten over 20 inches. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the things I discovered when I got here was that rainwater harvesting, which we do a lot of teaching about that in Phoenix, rainwater harvesting here is different. In Phoenix, we have, uh, you know, not that much rain. In Asheville, we have sometimes an, oh my gosh, amount of rain that you have to manage uh, for the massive amount of rain that we get all at once. So yeah, overflow serious. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm going to throw a, a quick question at you that I like to uh, on on my second interview with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you have and this is out of the blue, everybody, I just want you to know <laughs> uh, she doesn't know I'm going to ask this question. <laughs> do you have a childhood memory around food? Uh, and while you think about that, the, the where this question came from for me was my mom grew up in Vancouver, Canada. And so when I was a very young kid kid, we used to go and visit my grandpa on his 80 acre farm in Langley, British Columbia, and he had bees. And so he, and he, he didn't have bees. He had bees. I mean, like he had 40, wow. um, 40 beehives, bees. And so he used to take me in the back and behind the beehives and show them to me. And it was that, I think that really impacted my, my life around food and around nature. Yeah, that is incredible. What an experience that must right? have been. All those bees. <laughs> I can read uh, something similar with family. Um, my mom's side of the family had farms in Kentucky and we would go down there for a couple of summers. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing. Like we grew up and we had like a patch of woods we could play with. And I love being outside amongst trees. And, but they had like a pottery barn where they made pottery. Wow. They had like a pasture where they raised cows. And there was like, I don't know how many acres, but they had like a, a smokehouse for smoking meat. And I think they may have had a cheese cave. And I just, wow. yeah, yeah. I don't know if anybody's on the land now, but it was really just, I thought the neatest thing that they lived out there. And they were able to sustain themselves. And, you know, as a kid playing in the Creek was a lot of fun (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then 
chasing the cows and the adults weren't paying attention. <laughs> right. But uh, I just remember that had a really big impact. The first time I grew potatoes, and I think they were just like redskins from the store when I harvested the potatoes and they had a smell. And I was like, wow. I didn't know potatoes had so much flavor. <laughs> you know, right? I, had no, I had no idea. And I was, I was pretty much hooked after that. Well, and that's how we learn. I didn't, I didn't know 25 years ago. I didn't know where broccoli came from. Yeah. So I got some broccoli seeds and I grew broccoli. It's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's how you grow broccoli. So yeah, that's the, that's that's mm -hmm. the cool thing for me about gardening is it's this ongoing discovery and you know every season's a new season and new things can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of unique solutions. <laughs> right. So, do you have any final thoughts? I think this has really helped inspire me to want to like try new beans because I don't know about you, but. I don't eat a whole lot of variety of beans. Like I like black beans, like some chickpeas and lentils. Mm -hmm. But as far as trying out some of these like heirloom beans and I like snap peas and stuff, I would like to try more of them so that, you know, maybe we'll discover new beans that we like to eat. Right. And any final thoughts about your seed school? I'm just really very thankful for the opportunity. It's truly been an inspiration and I'm just happy to be part of it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. How can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Ah, good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I am on Facebook just under Hasina Kasim or on Instagram as Worm Whisperer. Cool. So, uh, well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.